Thank you, Jim. And I'd like to thank Mission Center to uh, give me the opportunity to talk about uh, my book, The Racing the Enemy, uh, Racing the Enemy, Stalin, Truman, and the Surrender of Japan. Now, since um, this book was published uh, uh, last May, and since its publication, it has provoked some interest, and most recently, um, you might know that the electronic site, HDiplo, uh, that is devoted to diplomatic history, uh, has organized a roundtable discussion uh, on my book, and then I had a, uh, I had a, had a privilege of, of uh, my book being uh, commented by a world-renowned specialist on the, on the topic of the of ending the Pacific War uh, or atomic bomb. Uh, or Soviet uh, Soviet Union, such as uh, David Holloway, uh, the author of Stalin and the Bomb, and uh, Baden Bernstein, uh, <coughs> and uh, uh, Gal Perovich, who's a head honcho of the revisionist historian of atomic bomb, uh, and uh, Michael Gordon, is a history of science uh, professor at Princeton, whose book, uh, the, the Third Shot, this is the third atomic bomb that's coming out from, uh, from Princeton University Press, and also uh, Richard Frank, uh, who's, the author, who's, who's the author of the very interesting book called Downfall, uh, uh, so um, it's a very interesting discussion. If you're interested, I think you can uh, log on and uh, look at the, the comments. Uh, Richard Frank's <coughs> comments, uh, very long, about 38-page, single-space uh, critique of my book. And Barton Bernstein's comment was, uh, he claims it's not as lengthy as Richard. It's a 20-page, single-space, <laughs> but he uses... Uh, font 10. So um, <clears throat> mine is a, is a model of brevity and conciseness. My response is merely 18-page single-spaced um, <laughs> response. But I, I think I am, I am, um, uh, I, I feel very fortunate that, that, that the book has been uh, scrutinized so in um, so much by um, by specialists only in a short span of time after the publication. What I would like to do today is basically three things, two things very briefly. First of all, why did I write this book? And secondly, I'm going to give you a very brief uh, present, uh, uh, presentation of what, what I argue in the book. And then, and then uh, those two things are very brief uh, 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 presentation. And then, and then I would like to <coughs> talk about <coughs> the third book, the importance of placing the entire matter of ending the post-Pacific War in a, in a co context of international history. And then I give one example, uh, that is, I take one example that's the most very important topic, that is the Postal Proclamation, and then how that the United States and Soviet Union and Japan reacted to it in the back background of Postal Proclamation and how they uh, reacted to it. Uh, Okay, <clears throat> so this is what I'm going to do. First, why did I write this book? The uh, ending the Pacific War, uh, of course, uh, there, there are many, there have been <clears throat> many, many books and articles written about this. Uh, but 
as Michael Gordon says, this, there are very three distinct literatures, three distinct literatures exist. That is, one is that American historians concentrate on a U.S. decision to drop the bomb. And the Japanese, this is the first literature. And second literature is the Japanese historians, mostly Japanese historians, um, focus, focusing on uh, the Japanese uh, political process in which the emperor finally accepted uh, unconditional surrender. And the third topic, uh, that is probably the most underdeveloped topic. That is a Soviet role in ending the war, and the Soviet role has been treated merely as a sideshow. And originally what I, I, um, I intended to do, uh, well, I, uh, I wrote the book. My uh, previous book is The Northern Territories uh, Dispute and, uh, and Russo-Japanese Relations, and then I have one chapter devoted to World War, World War II. And then I realized that how little has been has been written on the Soviet role of uh, of the uh, <coughs> of ending ending the uh, in in ending the Pacific War. So I, my intention, original intention, was to bring the Soviet factor to center stage and see what the, you know how that how um, the, the Soviet um, played the role. And in the process, I realized that that you have to bring all those three distinct literature into uh, into into whole. In fact, that uh, uh, you have to write in international history, bringing the Soviet and American and Japanese factor, and, uh, and uh, depict that the drama of ending the war into a coherent picture. In fact, that without considering the other factors, you cannot really understand the meaning of one factor, atomic bomb, or... Japanese acceptance of of, of, uh, of surrender or or, or, uh, or Stalin's role. So this is this is the reason why I decided to uh, write an international history of of uh, ending the Pacific War. Okay. So what um, argument I uh, I make in this book? The one there's one basically three. Subplot, sub stories that I tell. One story is that is the the race between the Soviet Union and the United States as to how to force Japan to surrender. The race between Truman and Stalin. You might say from uh, another point of view, the race between atomic bomb and Soviet entry into the war. This intense. Uh, struggle between Stalin and, uh, and, and and Truman, and so this is the first story uh, I tell. And then in in this, in the, as a part of of this story, that I challenge the commonly held view that it is it is the atomic bomb bombings on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that provided the most decisive impact on Japan Japan's uh, decision to surrender that I would argue that, that if you compare the two, Soviet em- entry into the war was more decisive than atomic bombings. And so this is, this is the first story I tell. The second story I tell, I, I think, is, is, a, is a Soviet-Japanese relations and the story of how the Soviet Union came to occupy um, 
the, the primary role in Jap Japan's foreign and military policy, and uh, how Stalin exploited that, uh, that uh, the primacy to prepare for the war against, against Japan. So this is the, this is the second uh, part of the story that I tell. And the third is, of course, the internal uh, Soviet, uh, Japanese decision-making process. And, and uh, I described the conflict between the so-called war party and then, um, and then the peace party, and how in the end the peace party involving the Japanese emperor maneuvered to accept unconditional surrender. And so those are the three stories, and then I would uh, like to reiterate those three aspects of the stories are very integrally connected, so that if you read my book, my book jumps from Washington to Moscow, Moscow to Tokyo, and, and trying to see that, that, that connection uh, of all those, uh, all those factors. And so, um, so this, those are the, the reasons why I decided to write the book, and uh, those are the main arguments that, that, that the, the, uh, the stories I tell in my book. What I like to do is to uh, take one very important aspect of, um, of, the, of the, um, the whole drama, that's Postum Proclamation. That Postum Proclamation is that the, uh, the ultimatum that the Truman, with uh, the, the signature of Churchill and Chiang Kai-shek, um, issued um, to Japan. Uh, so this is this person proclamation. I think, uh, in my opinion, uh, that's that's provides a really key uh, uh, provide interpretation. So that this is a very good um, uh, way to illustrate uh, my interpretation and why it is very important to see that postum proclamation in the international context. I distribute uh, two documents. One, uh, the first one is that that. The the, uh, that in English, okay. Uh, the first, this first page has two documents. Uh, one is the uh, uh, the, the first one is the original draft uh, given by uh, Henry Stimson, War, War Minister Henry Stimson, War, War Secretary. Secretary of War Henry Stimson to Truman on the July the July the second. Uh, the uh, the copy of uh, of handouts uh, outside. If you if you wish to uh, to have it, uh, this is the original draft proclamation uh, given by Stimson on the July the, the July the second. Before Truman um, went to uh, went to Potsdam, actually this was uh, this was uh, given by Stimson, but it was actually the most important uh, um, people who prepared uh, that draft is um, the War Department <coughs> Operation Division, the OPD is called Operation Division. Um, it's the one who prepared mostly uh, wrote. Uh, 
Rock uh, replied back to, in fact, more precisely, Carol Bonesteel of the OPD, Operation Division, was the, was the writer of that, of that draft. Okay, the second, the, the lower part of the document is the original, uh, the, is the actual postal proclamation issued by, uh, <coughs> by Truman, Churchill, and Chiang Kai-shek. And then I'd like to call your attention to, to two differences between the two documents. The first difference is that, of course, that the Soviet Union was, a, was an actor. In other words, Stimson and OPD expected the Soviet Union to be a part of the proclamation, right? And uh, when it is issued, it was issued in the final form, the Soviet Union was excluded. Okay, this is, this is a very important, uh, important difference. The second very important di difference is that paragraph 12. Paragraph 12 um, stated that they included a passage that allow the Japanese the possibility of maintaining a monarchical system under the current dynasty. Now that passage was eliminated in the final uh, post-proclamation. The question is, then why, what happened? Okay, so this is, this is a story. Um, in <clears throat> now, in fact, the, um, in order to understand this, then we have to get back a little bit. Um, first, I'd like to talk about Truman's dilemma. And then I'm going to move on to change the scenery, talk about Stalin, and then talk about Japan, and to explain the background. Um, the, as you know, that February 1945, um, Truman—I'm I mean, sorry—FDR uh, and Stalin concluded the Yalta uh, Agreement, secret agreement, where. Um, Stalin uh, was promised to gain certain um, war trophies, railways and ports in Manchuria and the territories uh, occupied by, by the Japanese, uh, specifically southern Sakhalin and then uh, the, the Kuriles, in return for uh, Soviet entry into the war. Okay, and at that time, the United States needed Soviet thought, considered it imperative to secure Soviet entry into the war in order to launch a successful invasion of, um, of homeland Japan. Now, by the time Truman uh, became president in April after FDR's death, the situation changed. Basically, Truman faced uh, two dilemmas. The first dilemma is this. Um, already by April, there was a tension between the Soviet Union and Western allies um, over, over Poland, over Eastern Europe. And so uh, Truman and Truman, uh, the policymakers, became uh, concerned about the implication of Soviet 
Soviet entry into the war. Obviously, the Soviet entry into the war would result in expansion of Soviet uh, influence in Asia. Uh, it may lead to Soviet demand for even some kind of participation in the Japanese, uh, Japanese occupation, uh, Japan's occupation, and so on. And so the, the Truman wanted to avoid Soviet entry into the war if he had a chance. But on the other hand, of course, that, that the military was planning to have the large-scale invasion of the homeland, Olympic, uh, invasion Olympic, scheduled on November the 1st, and that would be a tremendous sacrifice uh, on American soldiers. And so that the military planners were telling Truman that this Soviet entry would help to, of course, hasten the termination of war. And so that here is the dilemma. He wanted to avoid, he wanted, Truman wanted to avoid the Soviet entry, and yet uh, he might need Soviet entry into war. Okay, so this is the first dilemma. So what to do with the Soviet, Soviet Union? The second um, dilemma is unconditional surrender. Uh, Truman, of course, inherited FDR's policy to demand unconditional surrender on Japan, unconditional surrender, and not only uh, Truman wanted to, wanted to adhere to that, that unconditional surrender demand on Japan, not because, not only because that this is FDR's legacy, and, and not only because that, because the public opinion was decisively against Japan, and particularly against the emperor. Uh, the Gallup poll indicated decisively that, you know, that the, the majority of Americans favor for, say, Hang Hirohito or uh, they, uh, try him um, you know, as a war criminal uh, um, and so on. But not because of that, but, also, but in my opinion, I think Truman was really deeply committed to that demand because that he firmly believed that it is the just retribution of the humiliation uh, suffered at Pearl Harbor and also that all kinds of atrocities that the, the American soldiers, prisoners of war suffered. And so that is, it is only just for the United States to impose to bring Japan to its knees unconditionally. And so that's, um, so that he wanted to adhere to this unconditional surrender, and yet that by <coughs> April, May, June, some of the very influential advisors, policymakers, were advising him that in order to terminate the war before the on-scale uh, uh, American invasion, it might be he might consider the possibility of revising unconditional surrender in such a way to promise Japanese at least give the Japanese a possibility of maintaining some monarchical system because they knew that what Japanese are concerned about most is the fate of emperor and emperor system. And that way that if you revise this and then probably it might, it might induce all the moderate elements Peace Party in Japan to uh, take um, leadership, and then and, and then uh, might lead to the early termination of the war. Okay, uh, so and so that he did not. He was 
you know, faced with another second dilemma, whether to revise unconditional surrender or, or uh, stick to unconditional surrender. You see, as far as the, those people who just uh, demanded or the, uh, put the strong pressure on Truman were probably, well, Joseph Gru, a former ambassador Gru, of, uh, and also that uh, military people, that OPD strongly favored that uh, that uh, revising unconditional surrender, uh, and then it was adopted by uh, Stimson. And so that here, as far as Stimson OPD was concerned, this paragraph 12 is the real linchpin of ultimatum in the first place. Why issue ultimatum? Because ultimatum uh, to, uh, was to be issued to Japan so that that, that, that would give Japan uh, the chance to terminate the war um, before that the Americans launched the, uh, launched the invasion. So this is the situation uh, before the post-term conference, um, post-term, um, <coughs> post-term conference. So Truman faced two dilemmas. This is the important point. Now, now let's change the scene, uh, scenery and then let's, let's move to Moscow. Stalin also faced dilemma. Uh, Stalin already had concluded Yalta Agreement. Okay, so the Soviet Union entered the war, and Stalin was promised to gain, secure certain war trophies, the railways, ports, uh, air base, and, uh, and the territories. But in order to gain those war trophies, Soviet Union had to enter the war. Okay, this is very important. And so, um, as far as Stalin and the Soviet Union were concerned, war, the war had to last long enough for the Soviet Union to enter. So that's the dilemma. Uh, the Soviet Union was the only major country that maintained neutrality with Japan because 1941, Soviet Union and uh, Japan concluded the neutrality pact uh, that was to last for five years, and that neutrality pact has a special provision that unless that one party uh, notify the other one year before the term is up, then neutrality pact would uh, be extended for another five years automatically. And so that April came, and the Soviet Union notified the Japanese government that the Soviet government had no intention to renew the pact. But it hastened to add that the Soviet government, that the Soviet government let the Japanese government know, well, of course, that we, are, we have no intention to abrogate, to, to, to renew the neutrality pact. The neutrality pact would be in force until the term was up in April 1946. Now, um, and then, well, later on, Stalin explained to Truman why he did that. He said he, his intention was to lull the Japanese to sleep. All right, and so on the clock of neutrality, Stalin was particularly after German uh, surrender, 
frantically transporting the soldiers and weapons equipment to the Far East to prepare for the war against Japan. Um, there's one problem. That is, if the, if the Soviet Union, of course, Stalin, intended to wage war against Japan by violating the Neutrality Pact, right? In summer, in the summer of 1945, then how do you explain that violation of Neutrality Pact? That, that, that posed some problem, particularly, particularly, Stalin did not want to be compared with Hitler, who invaded the Soviet Union in violation of Nazi-Soviet pact. And so, um, so he's, he was, how to solve that dilemma, that his intention was to have the United States invite him to join the war. The Allies, that way that Allies, Soviet Union's commitment to the Allies, United States and Britain, would take precedent over Soviet Union's commitment to, to Japan. Right? This is a higher cause, and therefore they could, they could justify that, that the violation of neutrality pact. In fact, that the, when um, Harry Hopkins went to Moscow to meet Stalin in May, of 1945, Harry Hopkins went to, uh, to talk to Stalin to iron out some differences on the Poland, Poland issues, uh, Polish issues, problems with Stalin. Uh, they also discussed Far Eastern problem. And there, Harry Hopkins clearly promised Stalin that the issue of uh, well, the problem of issuing the joint ultimatum to Japan will be placed on the agenda of the forthcoming Potsdam conference. Incidentally, this is very interesting because that, that if you if you uh, if you uh, read um, the American documents, this does not appear because you know the, it's uh, in the fruits and, and and others even. Uh, even um, Harry Hopkins' record that is uh, that is kept in, um, in the Truman Library that if this does not appear. But if you if you read the Soviet minutes, then it is clear that that's why it is very important. Sometimes you know you cannot rely on American sources alone. You have to really take a look at the Soviet sources. Okay, and so but anyway, so it appears you know clearly um, the clearly Stalin expected at the forthcoming Potsdam conference that, that uh, the Truman to invite him, at, at least consult him, on the issue of joint uh, proclamation. And he expected that, that uh, he, he, he would sign that uh, ultimatum, then sign the signature of the joint ultimatum issued uh, to Japan at the Potsdam conference might be in lieu of the declaration of war. This is what he, he uh, wanted and expected. And in fact, that when, again, that, you know, if you uh, Soviet archives, that it is uh, the, the, uh, 
the, it was revealed that Soviet, uh, Stalin came to Boston with the Soviet version of Boston Proclamation in his pocket. Okay, so this is this is uh, Stalin's dilemma, uh, Stalin's expectation, Boston Proclamation. Now, how about I'm going to switch gear and then go to Japan. Japan also faced dilemma. By April, uh, May, uh, the Japanese policymakers came to to the conclusion, sober conclusion, that, that, that there's no way that Japan could win the war. And the problem how to terminate the war uh, came to occupy the, the concern, I mean, uh, the policymakers' uh, attention. But there are uh, that's, there's a war party, there's a hopeless division between the war party and peace party. The war party, particularly led by the army, they thought that uh, the best way to terminate the war was to wage the last ditch battle against the expected invasion of American forces in Kyushu. They predicted that they, they're going to, uh, uh, to attack Kyushu. And uh, they put all the reinforcement in the Kyushu, right, expecting. And then here that we can deal, uh, really uh, inflict, inflict um, the tremendous damage on the Americans so that we're going to break Americans' morale so that we can now terminate the war in um, favorable, more favorable terms than, than what the Americans demand. The uh, peace party were more concerned that that, that kind of um, uh, strategy would be very, very suicidal. And uh, the, uh, the risk, the even uh, the, uh, if that is, uh, that is implemented, then I think the risk that even preservation of the emperor, emperor system. And so they wanted to terminate the war uh, as soon as possible. So they are, they are hopelessly divided. But there's one thing that uh, they were united about. That is the preservation of a so-called kokutai. That is the national polity. It's a very nebulous concept. Um, kokutai, that is nebulous concept, but centering around the emperor system. Uh, they are both um, united on this. And therefore, they interpreted the American demand on conditional surrender to be the destruction of the emperor system. There's a shorthand of the, uh, of the, uh, of the destruction of the emperor system, or the Kokutai. Therefore, that as long as Americans or the allies insisted on that, on, on that unconditional surrender, they, they would not accept it. Uh, okay, so this is the situation. And by, uh, by the beginning of July, they came to the conclusion. There, there, was, there was an attempt by the Japanese government to approach uh, Ambassador uh, Malik, uh, Soviet Ambassador Malik, and attempt to secure a Soviet neutrality. Of course, that was, that was exploited fully by the Soviet government to, to prolong the war. And finally, uh, having failed that, uh, the Japanese government the emperor himself came to the conclusion that it's now time to terminate the war. Uh, and 
what's the best way to terminate the war and then preserve the, uh, the Koktai, the emperor system? It's to approach Moscow. Uh, Soviet Union's the only great uh, power that maintained neutrality. And so that they decided uh, to send a special emperor, special envoy, Prince Konoe, to Moscow to negoti- negotiate um, the terms. And so July 12th, only about five days before the Potsdam Conference began, Foreign Minister Togo sent a very, an important, important telegram to Ambassador Sato in Moscow, uh, instructing him, instructing him to approach the Soviet government to accept, to to request the acceptance of uh, of, of Emperor's special envoy because this is Emperor's august wish to terminate the war as soon as possible. But this telegram also contained the passage stating that, but if the Allies insists, insist on unconditional surrender, there's no choice for Japan but to fight the war to the bitter end. Now, as you may know, that the Japanese diplomatic uh, correspondence was intercepted by the Soviet, uh, by the United States called the Magic Intercept. It was intercepted, decoded, and they properly distributed to the highest uh, policy makers. And so, um, and also, Soviets, Soviet Union, Stalin, exploited that request uh, to, uh, to his uh, full advantage to prolong the war because the Soviet did not immediately reject the request. He said, well, this is, it's not, it's not clear enough. Send more information, all right? And so that lead Japanese on, all right? And uh, to prolong that, that uh, the, uh, the war. So the Potsdam Conference, those, those are the situations before the Potsdam Conference. <coughs> Now, the Potsdam Conference was held from July the 17th until August, uh, August the 2nd. And Stalin, I'm sorry, uh, Stimson, and there are a number of policymakers who received that the magic intercept of July 12 Togo's dispatch. Stimson and uh, uh, Joe McLeod, that assistant to War, assistant War Minister, uh, War Secretary of War, Navy, Navy Secret, Secretary of Navy, Forrester, they were all encouraged by this. This is the first time even, even uh, McLeod said this is the brightest news that we have received since the dark days of Pearl Harbor. This is the first time the Japanese emperor of all of, all of us even expressed a desire to terminate the war. So encouraged by this <coughs> telegram, Stimson went to see Truman on July the 16th. And Truman did not say anything. And he said, you have to see Burns on this issue. And so Stimson went to see um, Secretary of State uh, James Burns 
on the following day, in July the 17th. And there, Burns rejected Stimson's request that we should really stick to that, that the original, the original, uh, Stimson's original uh, draft, that is particularly with regard to the promise to maintain monarchical system. And says, no, no, we cannot do that. And Jim Burns explained to Stimson, the president and I <clears throat> have worked out a timetable. A timetable is a very, very pregnant expression. Timetable for what? Uh, in order to understand this, um, then, well, and also, also the July the seventeenth, um, Stalin and Truman had the first meeting. Uh, there, <coughs> Stalin. Uh, revealed to Truman that the Soviet Union is ready to participate, to join the war against Japan on or around August. Well, he referred to the Soviet entry into the war twice in this meeting, and the first time he says, we'll join the war by August 15th, and the second time he says, on uh, August 17th, so it's not clear what he meant. But Truman took that, Stalin's statement, to mean that the Soviet Union would join the war on August 15th. So here's one element of timetable. At least by then, the Soviet would enter the war. And the following day also, uh, Truman and uh, Stalin met and then <coughs> there, <coughs> Stalin <coughs> revealed another very important information. That is that, Mr. President, we had received the Japanese formal request for mediation for the termination of the war and showed him the Togo's July 12th telegram. Now, of course, Truman knew already uh, that Truman knew that what the Togo said but he pretended that he didn't know anything about it. Then he said, well, this is, well, what we don't know is just whether or not Stalin knew that Truman knew. I mean, this is, this is something that, but I think there is some, some possibility that Stalin knew. Therefore, as far as Stalin's concerned, there's nothing to, uh, well, there's everything to gain to Stalin. Okay, we are, we are, we're going to show you this most secret document uh, we, uh, we, uh, we, uh, we show you the goodwill. Okay. But August 16th is a, another very, very important event. That really changed the whole dynamics of the entire, entire, uh, entire uh, issues. That is August 16th, the first atomic bomb exploded in um, Alamogordo in New Mexico. And General Leslie Groves, pardon me? July. I'm July. July, yeah, I'm sorry. July, what did I say? July, July 16th. And uh, uh, General Groves' very detailed um, uh, report reached Truman on July 21st. Um, 
the atomic bomb really uh, changed the whole dynamics. First of all, Truman no longer needed Soviet entry uh, into the war. That he had acquired a weapon to force Japan's surrender without the Soviet entry into the war. In fact, from then on, it became important for Truman to exclude Stalin. And in the deliberation of Boston Proclamation, for instance, he consulted Churchill, consulted the British, but he did not consult Stalin at all. Stalin was just placed in a totally put in the dark. Uh, because I think that, in my opinion, I think it is very, very important to exclude now Soviet Union, Stalin, because it's important to terminate the war before the Soviet Soviets enter the war. And also, the atomic bomb gave him a chance to, to uh, stick, adhere to unconditional surrender that you could, because the, the, the possibility of bringing Japan to the early termination. In fact, but he, because he was confident that atomic bombings would be sufficient to compel Japan to surrender. And also, that I would argue, I mean, this is probably the most radical thing radical interpretation that developed in this book and for which I have been criticized, the nature of ultimatum changed. Remember that as far as OPD, Operation Division and Army, and then also uh, Stimson are concerned, the purpose of issuing the ultimatum is to induce Japan to early termination, right? Now, Truman acquired, uh, acquired atomic bomb. And he was confident that the Japan would be brought to surrender with atomic bombings. And so he demanded unconditional surrender in this. He struck out eliminated the most important passage that, that, that Stimson wanted to preserve, that the promise of constitutional monarchy. And Truman insisted, or Truman adhered to unconditional surrender, included unconditional surrender without specifically saying anything about the status of emperor, the issue that the Japanese policymakers are most vitally interested in. Fully aware that, that if the United States included the demand for unconditional surrender, the Japan would reject. Right? Therefore, I concluded that Boston Proclamation was issued to be rejected by Japan, expected that ultimatum to be rejected by Japan, by the Japanese, then why did they issue the Postal Proclamation? My interpretation 
is very, very radical that the Postal Proclamation was issued to be rejected by Japanese so that the United States could justify the use of atomic bomb. How did the Japanese react to the Boston Proclamation? Oh, just a minute. It's just before, before I go into this, that I have to mention another thing, that it's the, uh, you know, that, that there's no presidential order to deploy the atomic bomb. Uh, the, the order to use atomic bomb, the order to, uh, to use atomic bomb, was issued by General Handy, that's assistant chief of staff. Uh, the chief of staff, Marshall was in Boston, so Handy was in Washington. Um, this, uh, this order was written by Groves and sent to Boston uh, and got the approval of Marshall and Stimson and went back to, uh, uh, to, um, uh, Washington, and it was issued by General Handy to General Spatz on July 25th. This is one day before the Postal Proclamation was issued. Postal Pro Proclamation was issued on 26th. And so how did Jap the Japanese, Japanese government react to the Postal Proclamation? The Japanese immediately noticed two things. One, <coughs> Stalin didn't sign it. Two, Boston Proclamation was silent about the status of the emperor. Now, this is a time the Japanese government was trying to terminate the war through Moscow's mediation. And therefore, well, there's a very famous incident. The prime minister issued a statement that we are going to the Japanese government. It's going to moksatsu that silently kill, and that was construed as a rejection. But Japanese government did not really reject the proclamation, merely suspended its judgment so long as that Japanese attempt to meet to terminate the war through Moscow's mediation was still still on, um, uh, being pursued. So this is what happened. How did Stalin react to Boston proclamation? The Soviet government was really shocked. Uh, when it was the uh, Postal Proclamation, in fact, that, that the full text of Postal Proclamation was given to the press even before uh, American government burns uh, transmitted that to the, to the Soviet government. And when the Soviet government immediately, uh, Molotov, uh, Minister Malta immediately contacted Burns and says, could you suspend, could you postpone the issuance of Boston Proclamation for a few days? And Burns said, well, it's too bad, it's too, too late. It's already uh, released to the press. And then uh, and the following day, um, Stalin attended uh, the Boston Conference and formally requested that Truman invite him to append his signature to Boston Proclamation. Truman rejected that too, and gave him uh, sort of gave him an excuse that, that okay, you can you can join the war on the basis of 
Moscow Declaration on the basis of all the provisions of United Nations charters, which still remained unratified. Uh, but anyways, Truman rejected uh, Truman, uh, Stalin's request to append his signature to Boston Proclamation. Uh, in my opinion, I think Stalin realized at that moment very clearly that, that Truman was determined to terminate the war, force Japan <coughs> surrender before the Soviet joined the war. There's evidence to indicate that Stalin from Potsdam put the pressure on the military to change the date of attack on Japanese forces in Manchuria. Originally, it was determined that the Soviet, uh, Soviet military was supposed to, the, to initiate the attack on August, uh, August uh, 11th. And General Vasilevsky, that, uh, the commander-in-chief in the uh, Far Eastern forces, suggested, in obviously in response to Stalin's request that maybe we might, <coughs> we might change the date, advance the date of attack one or two days. It was actually rejected by the, by the general headquarters because, you know, that the more than a million people, million troops were uh, involved in this in large military theater, about three times as, uh, as bigger than, uh, bigger than the France, and you have to have an element of surprise that all the troops are supposed to act on, on the same day and the same time, so that the surprise is very important. So that general headquarters <coughs> requested, and, and then the original date was maintained on August, August uh, 11th. And then the first atomic bomb was <coughs> dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th. And Truman received the news uh, on the way back from Potsdam to uh, Washington. When he received the news that everybody recorded, everybody who witnessed the scene, says that he was excited, jubilant. He could not even contain himself. He was jumping up and down. This is the great news. And he just relayed to the message to Burns. Burns was also excited. If they are probably contemporary, they would just put a high five, you know, of, uh, of that excitement. And one uh, historian, uh, that's um, Ofner, said there was, there was not one iota of remorse in Truman's, Truman's response to the atomic the, the news. How do you explain that? I don't think that he was, he, he was, he had this, took the perverse pleasure of killing the Japanese. I think my interpretation was that, that the timetable, because I think it just smoothed, it just went, everything just went on exactly the way they planned. And he really believed that now is the time that we could, we could end the war, terminate the war before the Soviet entered the war. So that's, that's my interpretation. Well, how did Stalin react to this? And then let's turn to this second sheet of paper that I distributed. This is the appointment, Stalin's appointment book. Stalin went back to Moscow 
on August 5th, we resumed the very frantic activities. Okay, met all kinds of people, particularly those people, um, Molotov and Beria and those people who were obviously, uh, obviously preparing for the war uh, against Japan. That's August 5th. And on August 6th, when atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, he did not see anybody. The silence of this, I think it speaks volumes about Stalin's shock. I think that <coughs> Stalin is convinced that the game is over. We are defeated. The Japanese was going to terminate the war. But what happened was that August 7th, one day after the, after the Hiroshima bomb, Ambassador Sato approached well, Togo, for instance. Togo, the um, foreign minister, dispatched the, the, the urgent telegram to Sato. It says, contact Moscow, Soviet government, so that the situation is getting, getting very, very tense here because of the atomic bomb, right? And get the appointment of Molotov so that we can get the answer from Moscow, the, the Soviet government, about, on, on a pending request to receive Konoya. And then um, Sato approached Ambassador, uh, Soviet, uh, Soviet Foreign Ministry. And finally, uh, and, and this is very important because this is the first reaction of the Japanese government to, uh, to the atomic bomb. And immediately, Stalin left to action. The game is not over yet. He immediately issued, now this was, a doc, there's a documentation, he immediately issued the Soviet military to advance the date of attack by 48 hours, and of zero, zero hours of August 9th um, to, uh, to attack Japan. He also instructed Molotov to receive Sato on the following day, August 8th, uh, at 5 o'clock, and so that Sato reported back to Japan that finally I got the appointment with Molotov that, 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 that we have been waiting. And so all the eyes of Japan just focused on Molotov, Sato meeting in August 8th. And Sato went to, to see Molotov at 5 o'clock in August 5th. There, Molotov handed the declaration of war. The Soviet government would find itself in a state of war against Japan as of August 9th. Now, August 9th, 00 hour August 9th, in Transbaikal time, was only 6 o'clock in the evening in Moscow time. Within one hour, the Soviet tanks rolled into Manchuria. And the Soviet Union and Stalin managed to join the war in the nick of time. Right? And that was, well, what was Truman's reaction to that? Truman, a few hours after the, after the news reached Washington, Truman held a news conference there, and he says, gentlemen, I have an important announcement to make. 
the Soviet Union joined the war against Japan. That's all. The shortest news conference ever recorded by the president. And then later on, Secretary of Burns issued a statement. Oh, just I have to preface that the Soviet declaration of war against Japan stated that Soviet declared war against Japan because the Soviet Union had been requested by the Allies to join the Potsdam Proclamation. Right? And then, but then the Japanese government rejected it, therefore, that, that we, we joined the war. Now, Burns, um, uh, on, after this, he stated, well, of course, it's, we welcome Soviet participation in the war. And the Soviet Union had a, had a justification, legitimate justification to enter the war on the basis of Moscow Declaration and the United Nations Charter. And pointedly reminding everybody that the Soviet Union did not sign the Potsdam Proclamation. Well, what happened was that, of, co of course, that Soviet entry into the war was a great shock to, to Japan because the Japan was trying to achieve the termination of war through Moscow mediation. And that hope is completely dashed. And so that I'm not going to go into the det details of it because this is uh, the, the Japanese policy making is more complicated, uh, and that's I'm going to give another talk about about this what happened from August 9th to August 15th. This is a very very important. But I think that I would mention one thing, that is that if you compare the two, that's a Hiroshima bomb. The Nagasaki bomb just reached in the, in the middle of discussion, did not have much impact on the outcome of the Japanese uh, deliberation. If you really compare the two, then uh, there's no question the Soviet entry into the war was more decisive than the atomic bombings, bombings on Hiroshima and Japan, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki for Japan's decision to surrender. And I stop here that I, I, I'll entertain any, any questions. I'm sure that we have, we have many questions. Yeah. Jim? Burns, yeah. I don't know. Probably, I think Robert might might have a better answer on that. But I think that the, I think Burns, um, he trusted Burns more. You know, Burns is the only one. Um, Stimson was, ex you know, that that, that, um, that Truman went to went to Boston um, conference. <laughs> on uh, USS Augusta. And uh, uh, he or Burns very carefully selected who's, who should be on, on, uh, on, on the board. And Burns was, uh, was the only Burns and, um, and the chief of staff, Leahy. I think is another very important person. Leahy and Burns and Truman uh, met constantly to prepare for Boston, Boston conference. 
And so that, that it's quite clear that, that the burns had um, the most important impact on, on, on Truman. Stimson was excluded from that. Uh, Stimson flew, uh, nonetheless, to, to Boston. Um, but uh, but uh, it is quite clear that, that the Truman trusted Burns, and, and I think uh, Truman was very insecure about, uh, uh, about his presidency, that he really needed someone to advise him. And uh, I think Burns, uh, Burns' experience, I think, uh, was very, very important. Um, so I don't know, would you add more on, on this road? Burns is his appointee and Stimson is FDR's appointee. Yeah. And you might, you might add, you know, a kind of camaraderie, even an element of class in here. Um, That's right. Stimson being very Ivy League. old, established, yeah. upper class, Truman not being comfortable with people of that type. That would be my guess. Yes, sir. Uh, go back to uh, Suzuki's Mokusatsu statement. Mokusatsu, yeah. Instead of that, the Japanese had replied, we noticed that you didn't mention the emperor in the Potsdam Declaration. Let's talk. Is it possible that the atomic bombs have never been dropped? No, I don't think so. I think that the, the, my opinion that once the, once the Potsdam Proclamation was issued, I think nothing showed of Japanese complete acceptance of unconditional surrender would have deterred Truman administration from dropping the bomb. In fact, that uh, it is um, uh, it is very interesting. After that, you know, the Japanese government, after the issuance of ja post proclamation, Japanese government was divided how to respond to it. And uh, uh, originally, Japanese government decided not to respond in, in, in any way, particularly foreign ministry. Uh, and then in many ways that the Navy minister, Yonai, I mean, they were, it's very important not to respond in any way, right? And, but there's a strong pressure from the Army, uh, particularly Army, and then, and then uh, Navy uh, general staff. The, the proclamation was issued. It was now uh, well known and particularly among soldiers. And if we do not uh, issue any statement, that would demoralize all the soldiers. And so, so that, hence, that they agreed, okay, we're not going to make any commitment, but we are, Suzuki is going to um, issue this moksatsu that is silent kill. That's a very unfortunate, um, unfortunate statement. I might also mention that the Boston Proclamation was not issued as a diplomatic document. It was it was in a propaganda. It was issued through broadcast. You know, it's not. Well, Truman in his memoirs uh, that he said that Boston Proclamation was issued through proper channel, the Swiss legation, but that was not true. It was not proper document. In fact, the Boston Proclamation. The, the signature of Churchill was not Churchill's Chiang Kai-shek's signature. Those signatures are not authentic signatures. I mean, Truman wrote, and Churchill, and Chiang Kai-shek, and his, you know, his, his own, own handwriting. And there is, there is no original proclamation, right? 
And so, and then after this um, proclamation was issued, of course, there's um, there was uh, there's a Togo's dispatched to Sato, I believe, in July 29th, to the effect that we are we are trying to, of course, the Boston proclamation where there's certain very serious series of ambiguities exist. For instance, state you know that the relationship between the Boston Proclamation and Atlantic Charter uh, and the status of emperor and so on. But we have this disposition to make the terms of the Boston Proclamation uh, the basis for negotiations. Now, there is no evidence to indicate that any, any of the policymakers any uh, entertained or they closely watched how the, how the Japanese reacted, uh, would react to the Boston Proclamation. And then I think that that, the, the, that will lead me to conclude that when the Boston Proclamation was issued, it was, it's already the use of atomic bomb was determined unless, unless the Japanese completely Accept without any condition, con- unconditionally. Uh, okay, this is this is it. We accept it. You know, we are not going to make any. We are not going to make any um, any questions, any any conditions, and that is a very difficult for Japanese government to say, particularly specifically in relation to the ambiguity of the of the Japanese emperor. Yes, sir. Well, you know, the, I think Japanese at that point, Japanese are very um, did not care did not care anything about ideology. They are totally thinking in terms of balance of power, and they they were already aware of the conflict between the Soviet Union and the Western Allies, and uh, they. They would say that China would be a very, very important arena uh, in which the Soviets and then the Western allies would fight over. And so that, you know, if the, if the Japanese were to make more favorable conditions, uh, then I think um, it might be possible to play the Soviet Union against, against, the, against the allies. Those are the, you know, those are the um, uh, the calculations of policymakers. You might also, you might say that, oh my gosh, this is really wishful thinking, and then uh, that's probably right. I think the one uh, big mix, it's a fundamental weakness of Japanese policy, 
at that time is to mix wishful thinking with strategic thinking. But at the same time, though, you cannot really blame the Japanese very much either because I think that, you know, the um, even Americans, American military planners thought that the, the the Soviet Soviets would sooner or later join the war, join the war, but they would wait until the Japanese and the Americans would fight each other, and they would join the war when the, the, they are they expect that the least sort of uh, you know the the possibility of least cost, and then they would join at the appropriate time. This is what American planners thought. And furthermore, I would say that Soviet military, uh, I'm sorry, uh, foreign policy experts, uh, people like Malik, people like um, Lozovsky, that's a deputy foreign minister, and people like uh, Maisky, another deputy foreign minister, they are sending a recommendation to Stalin that, of course, that you know, Soviet security concern as a primary uh, the objectives and the forthcoming war against uh, struggle with Japan. But we might be able to gain those things without joining the war, right? Because that we, we will wait until that the Japan and an ally just fight each other. And just like an ally just waited for the Soviet Union and, Soviet, uh, and Germany to kill each other, you know, to join, you know, to join, join the Second Front, right? And so we might we might do that, you know. And so that it is not only the Japanese government who thought, who sort of underestimated the Stalin's really intention. And of course, that you can say this in in retrospect that a really really terrible wishful thinking. And in fact, that Japanese government was Japanese military was also divided on this issue. You know, there is there's a division intelligence uh, division with the general staff. Uh, that primary task of intelligence division is collect information and come to some kind of tentative hypothesis what Soviets are up to. This division detected this very massive transportation of, of the troops and the equipment to the Far East. They predicted sometime in the late August or beginning in the fall, there's a great possibility for Soviet Union to attack Soviet uh, attack attack Japanese forces in Manchuria. That recommendation was ignored by the more important operation and then the strategy division of general staff because their strategy was to wage this last last ditch um, uh, defense. Against uh, against the U.S. invasion, and they are you know sending divisions from Manchuria because they said no 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 we can really expect we could maintain Soviet neutrality, and so that Soviet neutrality was a very important pre uh, precondition for this so-called kids go, uh, and so so that so that there you can say that obviously there their strategy or their strategic thinking was uh, clouded by this wishful, wishful thinking. Yeah, Jim? Well, when you argue that, that the Soviet entry into the war was more important than the dropping of the atomic bomb, mm -hmm. you mean, mean to imply that even if the 
Japan had not been dropped, uh, the Japanese would have accepted the terms, or, and you mean they would have accepted them that quickly? Uh, well, yeah, that I have, I have a very, um, I just um, went out of them and the counterfactual suppositions, and then what if the atomic bombs are not? had not been bombed, I mean dropped. I think the Soviet entry into, into the war, I think would have convinced Japan to, um, to terminate the war. I think that possibility uh, existed. Uh, so I, I think right that, away, think not right away, but I think to sometime, you know, the Soviets were supposed to attack Japan sometime in uh, August. So by by uh, by the middle of August and uh, uh, and by late August, when the Soviets moved very quickly uh, and put very, very quickly, and Manchuria, Manchuria was overrun, and uh, Sakhalin was overrun, they moved to Curios, and then probably I think there's a possibility that that um, well, Stalin wanted to occupy uh, uh, the northern half of Hokkaido. And then I think you know that might be a realm of possibility, and that and then that the question becomes not merely the Soviet you know that the, the terminator war with Soviet mediation is completely um, over, but also the possibility of Soviet participation in Japan, Japan's occupation policy, which the policy makers very conservative policy makers, including Emperor. We're just totally concerned about because I think that would mean definitely mean the end of monarchical system. And so I think that there is a possibility that uh, that if had Truman waited for the Soviet entry or into the war, or say had Truman asked Stalin to sign Potsdam Proclamation, I think. There might be a possibility of ending terminating a war sooner, but that I think because of Truman's own choice, that's not precisely excluding the Soviet Union was his policy that that was not that was not entertained. Well, I think seems like I convinced you all. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.